From Irmo to Istanbul, from Taipei to Tunisia, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international disputes turn. We give glimpses into their lives and give insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry from around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us once again as you and I take a step and fantastic journey through Hong Kong. And, well, again, we're no longer in Hong Kong Arbitration Week. We're just stayed around a little extra bit of time to have some conversations with some of the practitioners there in the field. So, if you are enjoying this series, I hope that you will stay with us through the last few episodes of the season. We have a very special guest as a season finale. And before we get to that, of course, we want to tell you about two things. First, if you're enjoying the show, please don't forget to like, share, give it a comment, a review, especially on your podcasting platform of choice. Share the show with a friend. If you're really enjoying it, you could even make sure to like, you know, follow us on LinkedIn or something. That'd be cool. That'd be fun. And beyond that, let's get into this week's episode. This week, we had a fantastic, candid conversation with a very special voice in the field, Dr. Shala Ali. Shala is a tour de force in the world of international arbitration. Not only is her work focused on diversity, inclusion, and international arbitration, but the empirical and sort of researched ways in which that impacts the field. She is a professor at Hong Kong University and is active in speaking on this topic, writing on this topic, and frankly making um, appearances around the globe speaking about these sorts of things. So I found it to be a fascinating conversation. I think you will too. And it's a different take on the diversity conversation in a really thoughtful and intentional way. So without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Shala Ali. See you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, all right, so if you hear a little bit of breathiness, a little bit of uh, fatigue in my voice, it is because I'm coming at the end of this marathon of arbitration events I've been going on from Edinburgh to Seoul to now Hong Kong. And we're standing here at the end of Hong Kong Arbitration Week. If you listen to the compilation episode that came out just before this, you will recognize one the voice that you're going to hear today. And it's our guest, Dr. Shala Ali of Hong Kong University. Uh, Shala, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Chris. It's great to be here. Great. Thanks for being here with us today, Shala. So um, if you're familiar with Dr. Ali's work, you will recognize it related to the works of diversity and its impact on international arbitration, dispute resolution, and mediation as well. And Dr. Ali, we look forward to chatting with you here today. Um, before we get into um, your work, some of the things you did maybe during Hong Kong Arbitration Week and maybe Hong Kong University and some of the things related to that, we're going to start with a question that we love to ask all of our guests. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? Uh, so who am I? I'm Shala. So I, I was born in San Francisco. Um, 
My family background is my father. He is from Iran. He left in the 60s uh, due to persecution. Uh, 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 you know, he was a Baha'i. Um, my mom is German-American Alsatian. They met in San Francisco. I was born there. Um, yeah, I, I, I think part of what drove my worldview and sort of how I got interested into the, in this field was really this first seeing the parents, my parents, very different backgrounds, working out as a family um, with this concept that really the earth is like one country and all humanity are the citizens of that country. And so that we're essentially, you know, part of a, a global community. Um, and they were very supportive of me getting to know more about the, the world beyond San Francisco. Well, that's fantastic. No, and um, that's uh, first sort of a really interesting uh, family origin to be coming from Iran under those circumstances. Um, and then growing up in sort of a diverse community, like you've said, um, let's take some people know that they, they've heard me call you doctor now. They know you're a PhD, so you know, they know kind of where the story is now. Let's rewind a little bit from there. Um, maybe a, a first initial question. What is your PhD in? Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, so I studied um, arbitration as a comparative sort of from a comparative uh, institutional perspective and a comparative cultural perspective. So um, there was a great study done by Christian Burig Ul in the, ni- the 90s, which was looking at international arbitration practice. Um, and he interviewed and surveyed uh, over 200 practitioners at the time. Um, a great study, fantastic questions, really great l- insight into sort of the inter- inner workings of arbitration practice. I went later to look at sort of the pool of survey participants, and I I noticed that most of those were from North America, um, Europe, and uh, Western Europe. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to take the same survey and bring it to another part of the world and see, you know, is how we understand international arbitration really the same, or is it different? What are the areas of difference, similarity? Um, how, How does sort of our cultural background impact how we see our role and what our goal is within the arbitration process. So that's what my study eventually turned out to be, um, was a comparative look at practice. Okay, we're going to put a pin in that because we're going to come back. There's a lot of interesting threads that you've just mentioned there. Um, An even more fundamental question. Did young Shala know she always wanted to be an international arbitration professor and and practitioner? I mean, where did that come from? So when I was young, I I was exposed to some concepts, one of them being consultation, which I found beautiful, just a beautiful idea about how people resolve conflict or find understanding or agreement. So that's what I was really interested in was this idea of um, there's a there's a passage that talks about this process where the spark of truth comes after the clash of differing opinions, you know. And this, but it requires certain kind of um, internal work. It requires sort of humility, this um, understanding that uh, this tact, this wisdom, this like courtesy, this frankness, uh, this willingness to kind of accept, you know, if if there's a better idea out there to really put it uh, forward. Um, and not to be attached to one's own preconceived ideas. All of these concepts I found um, really incredibly uh, relevant to a lot of the issues I saw, you know, in terms of present-day conflict. Um, so that was interesting to me. Then I read a paper by Judge Dorothy Nelson. She's a judge in the Ninth Circuit in California. Um, she was talking about consultation and 
looking at its parallels with mediation and other forms of ADR as a pathway to peace, as a pathway of peace building. And I found that very, also very interesting and inspiring. So I thought, well, let me look into this thing, you know, this ADR thing that was in the uh, 90s. Um, and I started to work for a, some, uh, a mediation group in San Francisco. Um, and the more I looked into this field, the more I saw, well, this the background that's required is law. You know, if you want to help people solve disputes and problems, you need to study law. So that's what I did, um, and, and that's kind of what brought me here. Okay, okay. So I think that that does a really good job of sort of taking us from how you got into the practice of law, what those early stages look like. But I, I can't help but notice we were sitting in Hong Kong, but not California. So what was, I mean, yes, there's a hot, short hop from across the Pacific there. But how did that part in your career uh, sort of develop? When I was in high school, we hosted a, a, a couple uh, f- that was from Shanghai uh, for almost a year, half a year or so. And then when they left, they said, come visit, come stay in Shanghai. This was in the, light, uh, the mid-90s. So I did. I took them up on it. I spent a couple months in China, and I just became fascinated. Um, and I ended up coming back and spending about three years in mainland China and, and studying Chinese um, and minoring in that subject in university. So my research I mentioned before was about comparative arbitration practice. So the region that I was comparing was East Asia. So I was looking at what were some of the practices in this part of the world, uh, including mainland China, Hong Kong, you know, Korea, Japan. Um, and so that's I finished. Then I worked for a couple of years at Baker in the trade group in San Francisco. This opportunity came up to work to join the faculty here in Hong Kong, and uh, it was a great fit. And so I, I, I took the leap and, and moved here for it. Now it's 15, actually, 15 years ago. Fantastic. Okay, and let, let's, let's go through a couple of those points. You said Baker a moment ago. We're going to clarify for the audience. That's Baker McKenzie, not, not Baker Hughes, but that's Baker, Baker McKenzie, no? Baker McKenzie in San Francisco. And I worked for uh, John McKenzie, who's a great gentleman, wonderful mentor. Um, we worked on trade issues, mostly FCPA um, and other types of um, sanctions types issues, which now are becoming, unfortunately, more relevant again at, at the present time. I also worked on... Um, e-commerce related uh trade related issues great very well and um and of course you know so you've said that you have a minor in the chinese language i think you speak mandarin right right, right. yeah like your wife we were part of the mandarin uh, arbitration there's a, a salon that um we're both part of we join and try to keep up the skills <laughs> um yeah it's great to be in hong kong and to be able to use uh, chinese I've i've been fortunate to have um, of the cases that I've done in Chinese, so I've been able to keep up the practice, and uh, my kids go to local schools, so homework is also another chance, you know, <laughs> sifting through. Um, but it's 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 been fun. It's been a lot of fun. Sure, sure. No, I mean, and uh, my Mandarin skills certainly are are uh, pale in comparison to uh, what you you two are able to do. Um, and unfortunately, my my writing in English also looks like my Mandarin, which is not a good thing. <laughs> No, I'm sure it's it's much better than my English. But uh, no, it's it's a good it's a challenge. It's such a beautiful language. It's very different way of thinking. You know, in the uh, some of these like Cheng uh, Yu, they just they capture really interesting concepts in another way. So I, I I like the fact of being able to you know see things from multiple perspectives, and that's useful. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, 
Okay, well, look, so I think that um, sort of at least gives us sort of, sort of a speed run uh, through your origin story, how you got from uh, at least a couple of point A and B to now uh, C here in China. Um, so so now that we're here in the present, uh, maybe we can touch on some of the topics that you would have raised in, uh, in the panel on, um, on diversity and international arbitration, um, or perhaps some of the other work that you've got now. What's keeping you busy now? What's on, uh, what's on Dr. Ali's desk? Yeah, so right now I'm very interested in looking at how to mitigate disputes, actually. This is something I've been recently more interested in, especially in the context of large infrastructure projects. Um, there, There's potential catastrophic consequences for communities, and sometimes getting into those uh, at the late stage is a bit too late in terms of uh, what we're hoping to see in terms of social, economic development, uh, ESG-related um, governance issues. Once we mess something up, it's really hard to come back from it. So, yeah, I'm looking at how do we engage communities more into these consultative uh, processes, what's been learned well, what's working well across the board, across the world. So whether it's World Bank, it's ADB, it's IFC, or, or w- within Asia, um, now there's the Asia Infrastructure Bank, what are some of the learning processes? What are the challenges? And how can we build on those to, to put more uh, effort up front to, to sort of prevent some of these issues, these problems from arising? Well, right. And uh, look, I imagine that that sounds like a lot of uh, complex issues that would arise in trying to parse through that. What have been some of the, the challenges that you've had to work through um, as part of that process? Well, you know, this type of area is not well documented. So in most areas of law, you can read cases or you can see uh, write-ups, but this is tends to be quite um, private and, and not well publicized. So so finding the cases is not always easy. Uh, fortunately, there, there are some resources out there. I think uh, World Bank has been very transparent about the, the issues that it's faced and has published case reports, and that's been really helpful. So, okay, so that's an interesting point. Um, so I, I, then I wonder, um, Shala, how do you sort of navigate that? Then? One is to look at, there are some cases that are available, as I mentioned, um, uh, the, the Compliance Advisor Ombuds Office, they're very transparent with some of the issues they faced, and so looking at that um, and, and learning from those case studies. Um, of course, general media is also very helpful. Um, there's now increased global interest, I think, in the subject. So there are more networks of academics and people who are working in this field who are sharing what they learn. Um, and so all of that's been really great and very... Um, a lot of time that you could spend uh, sort of working through those issues. Um, in parallel to that, are there any other topics or any other things that you're also spending a lot of time on or thinking about? Or or um, I guess what comes to mind to you when you think about some of the issues in and yeah, I guess some of the recent projects that we've completed re- uh, over the last two or three years, there was one, the Diversity and in Inter- International Arbitration, that was a great uh, collaborative project. Um, Giorgio Colombo was the uh, lead author on that, and it was a lot of fun. Um, we also... T- tell us about that a little bit more, um, the Diversity and International Arbitration for the listeners at home so they can understand what that was and they can look into it if they're curious. Yeah, so the idea was really to hear from and create a forum for sharing experience globally in terms of what are the barriers to uh, representation within the arbitration field, how to overcome them, what is working, what's, what's maybe what are some of the challenges. Um, and so there was a cross-section of of geographies represented, um, backgrounds represented in this collection, and it came out last year. Um, 
I'd say one of the, I, I guess there are a few learnings, and I think this is what we talked about in the panel. Um, one of those being, it is useful to keep track of where we are with, with respect to diversity because it, it helps keep us accountable. Um, and that's something we did talk about on the panel. Uh, the more that we track, the more we can sort of um, see where if we're making progress. And it, one of the points that we mentioned on that panel was institutions that start to collect this data tend to make progress. And if you're collecting data, you're making progress by itself. So over, you know, every institution that started to collect this data has also been making uh, massive progress, actually quite remarkably. So, um, so I think that's one of the points is, you know, if we track it, we're going to, we're going to really pay attention to it. So, um, yeah. And I, and I think that there, part of what I think about is that there is an inherent uh, inherent um, value, um, both in terms of the legitimacy of the pro of the arbitration process, um, and also the structure of the of the entire system. So, I you know part of what we were talking about is within law fields, many of these institutions that we look at operating at the global level, like the International Court of Justice, it's mandated that those judges reflect the the spectrum, the geography of the people who. Who may appear before that court, and um, that's part of the uh, sort of constitution of that of that court um, within international arbitration. This is a privately organized system, and so it's it's really on us to 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 make those same efforts uh, to ensure that this representation exists within our own field. Well, that's right. I mean, and it, and it kind of draws to mind a very common uh, sort of quote and phrase, and a lot of activists in DEI spheres and has roots to the civil rights movement of what gets measured gets done. Right. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I think that that's absolutely true. If you don't have any sort of metrics or any sort of records of what is being done, what sort of progress is being made, how can you possibly make progress? And essentially, you're just sort of wandering around into the abyss. Really, that's a great, great way to put it. That's exactly right. And I think um, we're starting to see some movement also within institutions within Southeast Asia, within East Asia, institutions in China collecting now uh, more data and, and also, again, making some good progress um, in these fields. Um, one of the things that, um, as an American that sits in Europe, um, that I've been watching, and I think probably with interest is um, the rest of the international community, has been this sort of, I don't know, backlash is probably the appropriate word that you see in response to a lot of the DEI initiatives that we've seen um, that were sort of sparked in 2020, but certainly been going on long before that, and sort of that culminating in a SCOTUS's decision earlier this year to strike down affirmative action and then sort of these activist law firms, you know, trying to go after um, whatever they perceive as quote unquote affirmative action and other vestiges of society. I wonder how that impacts your work in the international arbitration, international legal space. Yeah, no, that's that's a great that's a great question. I mean, to me, this is more of a, a long term principle. It's a principle, not so much of a. I see it more from that perspective that it is um, this idea that humanity really is is enriched when we draw on the best of everyone and and we it's to our detriment and to our peril that we we don't draw on those resources it really hurts us you know and so it's more from that perspective that I see this um, and you know there there was a um, 
you know, I think similarly with the gender issue, the gender sort of equality, I think there's also been a lot of pushback there as well, you know, in terms of fatigue, you know, what do these women want? You know, it's like, haven't, don't they have an- Equality? What? <laughs> You'd be treated like everyone else. That, that's crazy. Yeah, what, what else do you need? So, you know, the same thing is going on there. Um, again, you know, I think from a, like more of a principle-based perspective, one of the things I shared in that panel, there's a passage I found very you know, illuminating, which is this idea that the world of humanity can be likened to a bird and it has two wings. One is man and the other is woman. And not until the two wings are equivalent in strength can that bird really effectively fly or make progress. So I think the same is true of diversity, you know, in terms of language, ethnicity, background. Um, As a humanity, you know, you can liken all the parts of humanity to a body and we're all different you know elements we have different strengths we have different functionalities we need all of those to work together and they all need to be part of that process the conversation they have to all have the opportunity to be healthy mm-hmm. <laughs> otherwise if one is really in dire straits the whole thing is going to be uh, falling down so we we have to so it's 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 not so much you know what's the current policy or how is it you know it's for me. It's more of a long-term principle that this is necessary for our progress. I think that that's well said, and um, you know, I think with any sort of progress, there are always steps forwards and steps back, ebbs and flows. And so, I think thinking about it as a, as a sort of lifestyle change, if we want to use that sort of uh, language, is probably more productive than think hyperfixating on any given data point on the larger scale. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think this is, uh, we're in a unique also time in history where we can step back literally and fly to the moon and see the whole earth as a single entity, as a single unit. And that wasn't possible, you know, 100 years ago. And so I think that gives us a new uh, understanding, but also a new level of responsibility to, 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 to act and behave in the way that reflects the idea that we are one earth, one people. And uh, we have to really work issues out drawing on the strengths of everyone and I, and I you know so and i think anchoring it to international legal practice um one of the the tenser moments in our panel that, that we can sort of sense <laughs> is um you know the, the, so there were already some tense moments and i'll ask i'll probably raise two of them here I'll, I'll start with the one that was probably followed by my question and as the the in-house counsel it was of course incumbent upon me to raise well maybe it has something to do with the business model <laughs> And to say that, you know, in a situation where you're incentivized, your system is based upon how much time you can devote to a task, but not necessarily the competence related there to or the value add, maybe that in and of itself is a a non-diverse sort of metric that the law firms have based itself on. And that didn't seem to be the most popular idea that was raised in the room in a room full of big law firm partners. <laughs> yeah, no, I have Lowers. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think everything is being relooked at right now. I think, uh, how we spend our time, how we serve people, how we bring the most value to people's needs. You know, it's a, it's a good time to rethink a lot of things. And, um, if, if there is a particular structure that is hampering us from really bringing everyone to the table, we have to really look at that. You know, I think one of the slides that was shown that I think you were referring to is there's a big drop-off in terms of, say, gender. After the sort of mid-tier, they're gone, women are gone. <laughs> and I think what you, were, what you were pointing out very rightly so is some of these structures which are very rigid uh, may not account for some of the, the 
multiple responsibilities that might arise as a family person. Um, and this is true both for women, it's true for men also who are involved. I talk to a lot of men who are lawyers who really want to be involved with their kids, you know, and it's uh, often people feel they have to make impossible choices and having structures that perhaps allow them to make choices which reflect the best interests of their family and their firm, th these are questions that we can start thinking about maybe a bit more broadly. I mean, and I think, you know, from a client perspective, you know, how much time a law firm bills at the end of the day is, is largely irrelevant to us. We need <laughs> the quality representation. I mean, if you can get that done in, you know, 100 hours versus 500 hours, it's the same to us. So it's weird that law firms sort of are clinging to this sort of idea that they need to really drive, drive, drive hours when the hours are really, um, for the end user, Immaterial. <laughs> right. No, I think that's a great point. I think people want to see their issues resolved, and they want to see them done well, and they want to they want to be ahead of the uh, of the curve and, and and not behind it, and not sort of be equivalent in in terms of their outlay, whether they lose the dispute. I think you mentioned this, or whether they pay the the lawyers whatever they would have won if had they won <laughs> had they settled immediately so yeah i think this is a, it's it's a, it's a critical point right and so and maybe an even more fundamental question and i think you know we've kind of jumped into a sort of um, mid-level to sort of advanced conversation on diversity and some of these topics but as a more fundamental question um dr ali when you hear the term diversity, what does that term mean to you? I mean, it, mean, it can mean, I recognize it can mean a lot of different things in different contexts, but as a sort of general term for someone that's maybe listening to this, that is an international arbitration practitioner that is trying to understand diversity, I mean, what does that really mean um, when they hear it? Yeah, you know, I think it's just what it, I think of a story, you know, Claudia Solomon was out here in Hong Kong not long ago, and she shared the story of um, Nelson Mandela's trial and you know part of part of the, the the what he observed was that you know i'm a i'm a black man in white man's court and this this court doesn't reflect me so why is why am i in this court you know what's is this legitimate i think the same with arbitration if we're talking about legitimacy we need to be talking about diversity for for the parties um but beyond that i think beyond that it's the the quality of the decisions are going to be improved uh when we have you know, all backgrounds putting their best thoughts forward in terms of how, you know, how to analyze the issues, how to um, parse them. And so diversity really is a reflection of the variety of cultures, language, backgrounds, you know, gender, you know, historically we know that there have been barriers uh, that have been put in place, um, particularly against the non-majority groups of, of, the, of this earth for various reasons. And it's not for lack of capability, but really lack of opportunity that we haven't seen the full expression of human capability expressed. And so diversity is really breaking down those barriers. And I think this came up in the panel too. If, if you have an op you know, you have a potential panel membership and you have um, two equally qualified people, um, there is a real benefit, I think, of picking the non-majority uh, candidate. Um, just because you're going to get a whole other set of perspectives and eyes on this issue in a way that you may not otherwise have. And there is an intrinsic benefit and value to that. Right. I, and I think that that's a really strong point that you raised there. And, um, you know, just from my own perspective, something that I've seen in the U.S. context is diversity meaning it's the same person but just in a different shade. So that is to say, you know, you have someone that has 
in all the same ways, the same background, same thinking patterns, but you know, they might just be a literally different color or they may happen to be gay or they may happen to be a woman, but you actually don't get the diversity of thought. And I fear sometimes in this conversation by not having the sort of nuance that we're discussing, that that's what people are focusing on, that they are trying to create the same person, but just with a very minor alteration so they can sort of tick the box instead of actually achieving diversity that clients and their teams actually would benefit from. No, I, I fully agree. I think um, we have to sort of venture out of our zones that we're used to sort of, and yeah, if, if we're all being educated in the same way, in the same systems, with the same sort of... Um, kind of frameworks, then we're not going to hear a lot of unique perspectives. So yeah, it, it means doing more work and, and making adventuring into more uh, wider terrain to, to, to bring in uh, more, in, you know, a wider set of perspectives. Um, and I think, yeah, part of the idea is that, you know, just as if we had a garden and we were tending to that garden and the garden had people, you know, maybe different shades of flower but they all like had the same sort of they were the, the same variety but maybe different color that's not necessarily what we want we want different shades different color different size different fragrance different mm-hmm. smell everything you know and then you're gonna say wow this is a great this is a great place to be in this garden and um it's gonna it's gonna refresh the person it's gonna refresh the thinking so i think you're exactly right we just don't want to have the same thing well, look, I know that we, you know, we could spend, you know, much more time than we have today talking about this topic. Um, one thing that I, you know, I'm really fascinated by harkens back to a few things that you said earlier um, as we sat down today. Um, and that's your time here in China, the work that you do here in China, and where we sit. And um, for those of you that are listening by, uh, by audio, and I guess that's everybody, uh, we sit here at this very nice facility here at uh, the Hong Kong University, um, nestled in the, the, the streets of Hong Kong. Um, what you know? What sort of programs do you have going on right now that might be interesting to those that maybe aren't from Hong Kong or might be from other parts of the world that maybe might want to study here? Yeah, great. Thanks, Chris. So, so the reason I came out here 14, 15 years ago was uh, the the law faculty at the University of Hong Kong started a LLM in arbitration and dispute resolution, um, and it's a great program. It's a one year program. Um, that's full-time or a two-year program part-time. So we get students who are working, um, and they do this in their evenings, the weekends, uh, or we get full-time people who come in for a year. Um, The great thing about this program is that the students come out with accreditation, um, both in mediation and arbitration. Um, So up until this year, the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators has um, provided fellowship status for students who pass 70% um, or over of our award writing class. I understand these are being modified now, so some of these requirements will evolve, and I think Chartered Institute is um, maybe going to do that last piece in-house, but we do provide basic uh, membership on graduation as well as uh, mediation certification, um, the 40-hour mediation certification. So students come in, they come from all walks of life, all backgrounds. Uh, some come from the engineering uh, field, surveying field, the civil service, um, quite a few with law backgrounds or a couple years of practice. Um, it's a great opportunity. It's pretty low cost, actually, if you compare it to some of the other LLMs. Um, okay, okay. So if you're cost conscious, uh, it's you know it's slightly under the average LLM costing. Um, it's worth checking out. So and we'd love to have more students from overseas. We every um, couple years, I mean, we've had a very diverse cohort, and then COVID hit. We had a bit of a drop in that, but we'd love to see more students 
from all walks, all parts of the world com- coming out here to Hong Kong and joining us. Are there scholarships available? I mean, any sort of financial aid? So that's a great question. That's something we do need to work on. Um, the Hong Kong government does give credit back to local Hong Kong citizens if you're a, a permanent resident of Hong Kong. So if you've been here for a couple of years, you get credit back for about a couple modules. Um, I think it's up to 20,000 Hong Kong dollars refund which is about 4,000 U.S. Okay, no, that, that's very good. Um, and so I wonder, I mean, you talked a little bit about it. Sometimes it's working professionals, sometimes it's students. Um, who are the ideal candidates for this program, I guess? If you're out there listening, I think the program might be for you. Yeah, I, I would say just someone who has a passion to get involved in this field and um, learning with a, a diverse group, being in the East Asian region. I think Hong Kong is still a very unique con- uh, connection point, a conjunction point uh, between sort of the rest of the world and mainland China. So it's kind of, you've got a whole mix over here. <laughs> and it's a, it's a nice spot to be for, for a period of time to get to know what's happening in the region. Um, but we've had students come from India, from Mexico, from Australia, from Europe, of course. Um, uh, several, well, several of the higher level students, the PhD students I've had from Kenya, um, some of my and so and any part of the world the US we've had a couple we'd love more students from the US um, from the Southeast Asian region um, yeah everyone's welcome okay and I guess maybe uh, one more thought that comes to mind and I think it's the one that goes to mind for everyone looking at any sort of further education um, what, what are the job prospects are folks um, I guess finding jobs pretty successfully after the program yeah no that's a, a very important question so a lot of our students, they do a mix of things. Some of them end up working in institutions. So we have quite a number of our graduates who do work with the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center or CTAC, the China International Arbitration Center, um, or other uh, institutions within the region. Some of them have gone back. Uh, our student from Mexico was running, helping to run the Mexican Arbitration Center over there. Um, some of them go back to their firms and they get more heavily embedded within the disputes um, uh, practice group and are able to contribute more directly to some of the issues that are coming up in those uh, practice groups. Some go back in-house. We had someone at um, Chanel. She was doing in-house and so she was able to help the, the company do more in terms of its management of IP disputes, etc. So people do all sorts of things. We have a number who go into um, survey work, surveying construction. They, they work on site and they use their school skills to kind of address the fires that come up in, in the in the construction uh, business that they're in. Um, so it's, it's quite a variety. Very cool, very cool. So, um, well, and I guess maybe this is a good uh, transition question from here. If they want to find out more, you know, what's the, the sort of um, recruiting timeline look like? Where can they get more information? Um, how do they sort of do that? They want to engage more with the program. Yeah, that's great. Um, there is a website, um, and you can tr- uh, go to the Hong Kong U Law website, and on the landing page, there is a link to the LLM in arbitration and dispute resolution. And through that, you can sort of see what the deadlines are. I believe our next intake will come up uh, in December, December, January. We'll start to accept uh, applications. Okay, very cool, very cool. So, yeah, we'll include uh, those links in the show notes so that if, you know, you want to sharpen your applications uh, ready, you know, there's still plenty of time to think about the next um, next rounding of uh of intake, so that, that's very cool. Um, well, uh, look, before we sort of make a, a bigger shift, is there um, sort of 
we did put a pin in a topic earlier um, about the, you know, the comparative law things. Um, do you want to say anything further about that or maybe any other work that you have forthcoming that you'd like to let uh, the folks listening at home know about? Thanks. Uh, yeah, so we did, yeah, there was a project on comparative transnational dispute resolution that was looking more at the sort of challenges of studying comparative arbitration mediation uh, as a subject. You know, we have comparative legal institution, comparative constitutional law, comparative uh, whatnot. So uh, the, the disputes, dispute resolution field is by its own nature very sort of party driven. It's, it's, it's bespoke. So how do we look at such a sort of unique uh, uh, field in multiple cultural and, and legal context. So that was this book, this last project. It's called uh, Comparative and Transnational Dispute Resolution. Um, and so that came out a year or two ago. Um, and uh, we had a project also on the UNCITRAL model law looking, again, from multiple um, legal uh, jurisdictions, the interpretations of local courts in terms of how they're applying the UNCITRAL model law. That was also a, a team of of, of colleagues from around the world, um, and that came out a couple years ago, um, and we hope it's useful. But yeah, no, that's kind of the field I, I enjoy. It's uh, it's sort of having conversations across jurisdictions and seeing how we can learn from one another and also how to kind of understand the the nature of law in these different systems. Sure thing, sure thing. Um, I guess uh, a follow up question to all. Well, I guess really the sort of conversation thus far is. If you hadn't become a professor in international law, international dispute resolution, what do you think you would have done instead? Was there any other? What's the the alternate timeline? Shala doing? So, so if so, if I had the skill, I think I would have loved to do design design work. I really love color and just space. You know, I, I just I find it really fun. Um, I looked at it though. I was actually looking at the, the, putting in an application, but then I thought, you know. People have had a lot of background. That's something I think I'll just have to do uh, on my own. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair enough. Hey, look, it's not too late. Design is something yeah. I think it's a lifelong sort of thing, so no need to close that door off. We'll see. We'll see. I do have fun at home. During COVID, I spray-painted our dining room chairs bright green. Uh, there's like a fuchsia cushion going on there and bright yellow wall accent. So it's fun. If you come over next time, you have to come and, and give me your take uh, on what's going on in the house. Fair enough. Very official. Very official. Okay. Um, so since, look, uh, we're going to make a little bit of a shift um, in topics, really hard-hitting questions coming up here next. Um, before we get to sort of the speed round questions, you've talked about it a little bit, especially at the outset of our conversation. What have been some of the guiding forces, influences on your career? Maybe that's role models. Maybe that's um, a book or, you know, an experience, any of those types of things that have been um, impactful on your philosophy and your sort of professional approach. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, there's so many things. Um, I would say one of them is, you know, one of them is this idea that uh, the relevance and the importance of international arbitration as a form of of peace building you know I think that that's something that's always motivated me that um, the more that we can sort of through institutions and communication conversation resolve disputes um, the better off we are as a human race <laughs> and I think that drives a lot of us I think that's a common um, vision that we have that's why we're doing this I'd say another person was uh, David Karen. I was fortunate that he was my uh, one of my thesis advisors at Berkeley, and he's just he was just a gentleman, um, had a real also global vision and outlook, and uh, uh, really appreciated him. Very well, very well. Okay, um, well that's a good one. Uh, okay, so speed round um, things a little bit uh, quicker, I think. Um, 
What's on your bookshelf? What are you reading right now? So, so I love um, Zadie Smith. Anything she writes is fun. I, that's the thing I read on the train or the bus. I just read Grand Union, uh, which is fun, and Intimations. But all her stuff, whenever something comes, because yeah. she's, she's just got a great wit and insight. I also have The Hidden Words of Baha'u'llah, which is like a set of short statements about our soul and like feeding our soul, uh, how, to, how to take care of it, what, how to nourish it. So it's, it's a mix. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Very interesting. And we'll, uh, like we always do, we'll include uh, some links to those so people can find those too if they're interested. Um, similar uh, line, what kind of music are you into? What kind of genres, favorite artist, anything like that? Yeah. So again, I have, you know, it's pretty eclectic. I would say the thing that I will turn up really loud in my car uh, is 90s rap. So like Fuji, <laughs> Fuji's, I love Lauryn Hill, uh, Diggable Planets. Uh, Dr. Dre, like clean version, I have to do. I have a, I have a seven year old, and for so I have to get the like non. But that stuff I will turn up. And then I also love Chinese pop singer Wang Fei. She's got great stuff, also from the '90s. She's kind of like cranberries of China. Um, interesting, really unique voice. Um, so again, and then just a mix in in, in the middle of that, yeah. Okay, very good, very good. And okay, and the last one in this sort of series of questions, um, if you, to the extent you have time, um, any series that you're watching, Netflix, uh, Amazon, anything like that? Oh my gosh, this is where I get embarrassed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is where I embarrass myself. Well, I could say, I mean, I could say the, the sort of heady one, which is, you know, is the um, Blue Zones, which is great. It's oh, just, yeah. you know, how people live, what, what are healthy things to do. And I love that. So we just started. Uh, the non, the embarrassing one is Selling Sunset. It's just like mm. awful, awful, but really fun. I miss California. And sometimes it's just entertaining to watch how, you know, how people live and how they find their real estate. So. That's the mix. Okay, those aren't terrible. No judgment. You know, I've heard worse recommendations. So very well, very well. Um, okay, shifting a little bit more, last, you know, more uh, less speed roundy type questions. Um, let's say you were approached by a recent graduate, you know, or maybe someone that's looking to break into the field of international arbitration, anything like that. Um, what sort of advice or sort of tips would you give them to sort of make that transition? I would say first, you know, if there's a program that you can get involved with. Um, you know, one of the LLMs, there's so many great LLMs in the world now that are focused on this uh, international arbitration, you know, all, all over the world. So look into one of those. I would say, um, yeah, if your firm has opportunities or your workplace uh, to get involved in cases. But then in terms of like entry, that's always a hard thing. You know, how do you get your first case or couple cases? I would say if there are institutional mandated pro programs within your country or your region, for me, I started working with FINRA, the Financial Industry Dispute Resolution Authority. That was a good stepping stone into getting, you know, exposed to sort of the pr pr practice and procedure. Um, then I started doing the um, work with HKIC and then getting more sort of com uh, complex commercial cases. But I think starting with something that is more um, sort of uh, narrow in terms of the issue scope, um, but high volume, maybe low low pay, but just, you know, you get your experience, and I think that's where we all can start. No, absolutely. I think that's 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 well said, um, and we'll make sure to sort of give a couple of those notes and then the notes as well, show notes as well. Um, you know, it sounds like, you know, throughout our conversation, um, well, just from you being a professor working with students, you're seeing them at a very potentially tense time for them where they're working a lot under a lot of stress under a lot of pressure um i wonder 
any thoughts or advice you might give them for sort of having a little bit of work-life balance or taking care of their mental health um, in, in such a competitive field and under such demanding circumstances? Yeah, no, that's that's incredibly important. I'd, I'd say the extent that they can get outside, <laughs> get outside. <laughs> that's been always a saving grace. We got a dog, a rescue dog, and she's pulling me out there. Um, yeah, that's one. I would say... Yeah, turn turn to your spirit. I mean, there's so many rich spiritual traditions in the world. Um, I know there's a lot of, uh, on the surface level, um, conflict that we see between various sort of groups. But I think at the core, all the text of all faiths is so beautiful and comes, in my view, from a single source, <laughs> which is the same source that all people come from. And I think that we can really also nourish our soul by turning to any of these texts and really drawing some insight from that. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, just being with people you love and, and working together as groups to try to advance the, the, the things that you're feeling strongly about. Very well, very well. Um, okay, well, look, we're coming to uh, sort of the last couple of questions we've got for today, and, um, you know, the time always goes by too quickly. Um, let's say that it is 5 p.m. on a Friday, like it may or may not be around now. Um, you, you can wave a magic wand, do whatever you want, um, you know, Money time is not a, not a factor. You do whatever you'd like. How are you going to spend your ideal weekend? I would say we got we got one of these blow up paddle boards. I blow it up, go out into some waterway and float around, just uh, paddle out, um, hang out with the kids. You know, uh, my daughter's uh, turning fifteen, so we're going to make a cake this weekend. Another one. We had two. We have back to back parties. It's kind oh. of a big deal. So uh, we're going to do another cake today when I get home. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Paddle boarding and cake. That that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> you got to use the paddle board to work off the cake, right? So they they kind of balance each other. We always balance. Always balance. Okay. Well, very well. Very well. Well, look. Before we get out of here today, um, I wonder um, any tips of the cap, shout outs, any name drops you want to give before we get out of here. So I would just uh, name drop you. I mean, I think this is a great podcast. You're doing a great service for the arbitration community for. Um, those who are starting for those who've been in the field. So I would just want to appreciate you um, and what you're doing. And I, I look forward to hearing more and learning more from the people that you interview. Well, look, um, thank you so much for coming by. Um, well, I say coming by. I came to you. <laughs> um, but for, for making time for us uh, this week, uh, especially on such short notice, um, this is a great conversation. We look forward to having you back um, maybe on Disputes Digest or, or another episode of the show. Um, and we'll sure. Thanks for coming by, Dr. Ali. And do you want to sign us off? Yes, I would love to. So I'm Shala Ali, and there's no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all next time. Right, and so there you have it. Um, It was a really fun cool conversation with Dr. Ali. Shala, it was fantastic having you in the digital studio. We have to make that happen again sometime. I felt like the conversation could have gone on for at least another hour or so. And um, it was really cool to see your perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how that is um, evolving and impacting the world of international arbitration. Um, So with that, I will say we have wrapped up at least another conversation in Hong Kong. We have a couple of more that we're going to bring to you here over the next couple of weeks. And we should manage to wrap up season five before the end of the year. That might be a good thing to do. So again, if you like the show, enjoy it. Share it with a friend or colleague. Leave us a review. All of those good things. And we'll see you next time. 
Tales of the Tribunal is produced by Mo Better Solution. Show music is done by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. That's it for this week, and don't forget, there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.